I can't think of any occasion when hearing the rules for something has made it sound like more fun. Do you know what I mean? I can't think of, I've been trying to, I've been trying to rack my brains, and I've come up with one, an exception that proves the rule, Twister was the one that I came up with. You know, when you're explaining the rules of Twister, you need to spin the dice. Okay, that's interesting. But, and then you need to put your hand over there, and then somebody else next to you might need to put your hand over there. And, it might, you know, and the more that you read the rules of Twister, you think, okay, actually, that might sound like fun. But generally speaking, when we get the rules for something, we're looking at the Ten Commandments, and how stern, how stern does it sound, the Ten Commandments? It sounds more stern when you do the thou shalt not, we don't have that anymore, but when those are read out, the thou shalt not, it sounds really, really stern, doesn't it? But the, the rules never really sound like, never sound like they're going to make it more fun. Uh, you, you might have gone away to, how, to uh, an event, um, and because of the health and safety culture we're living just now, they've got to give you that chat at the start, you know, the, some uh, often students Often a student will come in and say, we're going to have a great time today, but I just need to run through a few house rules. And you're all sort of pumped. I did an escape room. Uh, have you done that recently? And I was like, I've not been out of the house for a long time. Not, you know, not a lot got, got a lot going on. And I'm out for a, for a day out, and I'm pumped, and I'm excited, and I'm, I'm really enthused for the day out. And this lady comes before me, and she says, it's great. We're going to have a great time. I just need to run through a few house rules with you. And all of a sudden, this somberness just hits you. You know, you can't take any photographs. If you do take photographs, it really can only be a selfie. Can't take a photograph of anybody else. Can't, um, if, if in, case of a, in case of a fire, you need to exit here. In case, and, all, and all of a sudden, you're just like, oh, man. It's not only that the, the moment of fun has passed you by, but you've kind of almost lost the will to, to live. You're like, I came, for, I came for fun here. And the rules, the rules even though they, you know, they're good, inherently good, but they come and they kind of crush the sort of fun sense of spirit. You get that? Ten Commandments, that's where we're at today. I, we were, and this has been my last South of France story, if you're getting sick to death of our holidays. Um, but I, I was in the city, it's helpful, anecdotally it's helpful. We got to the swimming pool and I was just like bursting with joy, just like I had all the gear, do you know what I mean? The five Gibsons ready to just to have fun in the swimming pool, just to the, just it's there in front of us. There were a few of them were just like ready to go and embrace it. And then we came to this like wall of rules, just this like with like red crosses all the way through them all. And it's like somebody had spent, it's like some uh, guy in the south of France said, let's just think about what the Englishman would really want to do when he gets here. Let's think about that. Does he want to eat ice cream? Does he want to does he want to dive bomb? Yes, he wants to dive bomb. That's all he's been thinking about doing is dive bombing. And there's just this big, long list of red crosses through all this stuff. And it's almost like they go out of, of their way to take, you know, to take the fun away. And, and on top of that, I don't know if you've ever been to the south of France. And I love the south of France. But one, like the last rule in the bottom right-hand corner was no, no like slack swimming shorts. You've got to be in trunks. And it's almost like they're saying, right, okay, okay, Mr. Gibson, I want you to, have, I want you to get to this pool I want you to have no fun whatsoever. And while you're having your no fun, I want you to be humiliated by the white flesh that everyone's got to look at. And that's, that's kind of what, what these rules do. Now, I want you to, to take a step into back to Sinai, back to the people of Israel, and, and to put yourself in their shoes. They, let me tell you, they are ready. They're like me, bombing onto the swimming pool. They are ready to have a good time. They are, they've had 400 years of serfdom. They've been slaves. They... They have been born out, they've come out of slavery, and 
They've heard about, can you imagine this? How exciting does this sound? The promised land. Have you ever thought of it? how exciting? That's like, it's like, sounds like a theme park, doesn't it? They're going to the promised land after 400 years of serfdom. And they're going, you know, it's going to be overflowing with milk and honey. It's just going to be this amazing place. And they're going with, get this, Moses. How, how much fun's Moses going to be to be around? The guy with the stick who can turn things into anything you kind of want. This place is going to be amazing. And they're on this journey They're on this journey to the promised land, and I guess in terms of the Bible narrative, they're on the cusp of this journey, and God says to them at this point, like me, just about to dive into the swimming pool, here are the rules. Here's the rules. Go and have a great time in the promised land. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that. I don't think God said thou shalt not. We've added that, but he said here's the rules. And what he's going to say to them is, and this is is kind of the case I'm going to make real quick. We're going to... We're going to read through the Ten Commandments because I bet you can't remember what they all are. It's a struggle, isn't it? We're going to read through them and we're going to go through them. But this is what God says to them. And he says, this is going to be, these are the best rules for your life. Did you, did you think that when you heard those rules being read out? Did you think, they sound great. That's, that's where to have a party right there. But God is saying, and this is what we're going to, this is what we're going to, what's going to be revealed to us hopefully that these are the best ways for us to live. So the Ten Commandments then, we'll fire in at first one, verse, the first one, there, there it is up there. A couple of things just to bear in mind as we get fired into them. This is the point in the story when God gets prescriptive. I said at the start, didn't I? this is where God writes stuff down on a good way and a bad way to live. And I listened to a couple of sermons in the week and they they let you know that God is writing this. I mean, we receive these Ten Commandments in one way, but God is writing this into a people who have just lived under Egyptian rule. He says, be mindful of, all, you know, we've, we've been through Exodus. We've seen, we've seen Herod's rule and reign. We've seen all that stuff. He said, be mindful when we go through these Ten Commandments of that backstory. And another thing just to think about as well, this is not all that God says. There's loads more rules that God gives, and there's loads more shape that God wants to make to our lives. Think of these as sort of representative commands. This is the kind of place that God, this is the kind of way to live in the kind of place that God wants you to live in. It's not an exhaustive list. This is not everything. Don't think if you can manage to get these 10 down, you're all good. There's more out there. So the first one is this. You shall have no gods before me. This is the first one. And you've got to cast your mind back to what what they've lived through in Egypt. There's been gods everywhere, and there's been one god in particular that has that is that sort of stands in front of us really clearly, and that's been Pharaoh. Pharaoh takes it upon himself to become God, and what happens when Pharaoh does this? What happens when somebody gets beyond their normal humanness, their sense of themselves, and elevates themselves to a god? Abuses take place. God says, what is that quote? I found a quote in the week. It's a quote that you'll know. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. William Pitt or Lord Acton. I couldn't really figure out which one of them, you know, there's a bit of wrestling match who, who, who of them actually gave it. But the message is don't, don't elevate anybody to a godlike state because that is when society will be abused. It's a real stinger for us, I think. And I don't know if, if I'm saying these words, maybe you're thinking about a few characters from the world of politics or the world of sport or media or something like that. People who have, so almost, you almost, you look at them and you think, have you le- left 
the human race for a second and you've kind of elevated yourself to a kind of a godlike state, God says to us here, in, in this society that I'm going to build, we're not going to have those people because that's when abuse and abuses start because human beings can't handle godlike status. He says we're not going to have gods. And he goes on to say, second commandment, you shall make for yourself, you shall not, you shall not, that's important. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on earth, in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. I am a jealous God. So you're not going to help this on its way at all. You're not going to make this worse. We've seen gods and you've seen in Egypt the extent of, of horror that causes. He's, like, he's almost like he's saying, there's no, you know, and we can see the way that God destroyed all these idols, you know, the different idols that they built up. He's like saying, don't waste your time on these idols. These idols will dissipate. They will let you down. They will disappear. We're not going to have a society that's got gods other than me, and we're not going to have a society where you waste your time on idols. The third one, and when I, when I come to the third commandment, and I, I'd be interested to know how, you, how, you, how you've experienced this. I don't know if you come from a Christian family or a family that's familiar with the Ten Commandments, how you've experienced this. But this is always meant to me, don't swear. Just pretty much just don't swear. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Have you, did you grow up with that in your house? And, and, and I think it's wise not to do that. I don't think it's great to do that. I don't think that's what this, this moment is getting at here. I think it's saying, it's considering somebody like Moses who used the name of Yahweh and said, I'm going to do some good things here and God has told me to do this. I think he's saying to the people, don't grab God's name and say that this is God doing it if it's not. Because that can damage people. And I reckon you could look back painstakingly at religion and go, man, Commandment number three, right there. People that have said, if you watch any films about the Knights Templars and things like that, and it's good and bad and all that stuff, but he said, God wills this. And maybe you could think about other religious characters over the years that have gone, God said this, and it means this. And it gives a real caution. And God says to us, this, this is not going to be present in the society that I'm going to build. It's not going to look like this. People are not going to claim stuff in the name of God if it's not happening. Commandment Number three, also probably good not to swear, but that's maybe a separate, <laughs> maybe a separate thing. Commandment number four, and this is, this is a long one. So obviously, some of the commandments, they don't need loads of explanation. We're going to get to do not murder in a little bit. Kind of kind of covers itself, doesn't it? And I'm glad for it, because that's the first one I, I get through the list where I think, yeah, I'm good. I'm good on that one. I'm definitely not done that. You know, the other, you know, and it's true, but this one needs a bit more explanation. Remember... The Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed it and made it holy. Again, see that command? And maybe there's a bunch of stuff that you've done with that command as well. Maybe you've grown up in a church household and people have said, right, okay, that means we're going to keep Sunday different or a certain day different. Maybe, it's, maybe it means all, all that sort of stuff. And, obvious, and I'm not condemning that. And I'm, not, I'm not speaking down on any of that. 
right now. What I want you to remember just in this moment is as God gives this command, the world that these people have come from, they have been abused for 400 years. The, the society in Egypt was an abusing society. It, it abused the people that lived there right the way through it. There was what we would call today inequality everywhere. And God says, in my society, we are not going to have that. God brings, it would have been a radical term in these times. God says, everybody on the Sabbath day, everybody's going to down tools. And in a lot of cultures, you go, okay, that's fine. The rich guys can down tools. That's fine. And I'll keep my servants working for me. That means I can keep my business going. It's not going to affect that. No, God says, everybody on this day, everybody is going to rest. You're going you're to look at me, the Lord your God, who rested on the seventh day, and you're going to be like me. And it's like the foothills of equality in this society. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I think all these, all these commandments speak massively into our society today, but this is one that really speaks heavily, I think, into a culture where we where there's so much temptation for us and for you to work yourselves to death. There's, there's so, there's, you know, everything in you, every, everything, every, every pattern of the world, everywhere you look is that there is an encouragement for you not to stop, for you to need to earn as much money as you can. I don't know how the world sort of got itself lined up this way, but it has. And this commandment speaks right into the habit of the world of working itself to death. And it says, I want you to rest because I rested and I want you to rest in me knowing that I can provide for you. One of the big lessons that these people are going to learn on this journey through the desert, that God will be the provision. And prove it, he says, just you're going to have to put your feet up one day a week, the Sabbath. The fifth one. Again, this is another, and I, these are really familiar to me as I'm growing up as a child. Honor your father and mother. I think my mum and dad said it, you know, this was the one that they knew. This was the one that they'd bring up all the time. Honor your father and mother that you may live long in the land. The first one that comes uh, with a new test, with a, with a promise that's, that's sort of referred to in the New Testament. Honor your father and mother. And it's one of those commandments that's, that's been abused, I think. Again, another one where, where mums and dads have sort of hoarded it over their kids. And they said, well, look, this is what the Bible says. You've got to honor me. I think, again, it's worth just remembering the culture that this is written into. Patriarchal society, probably going to be the guy who's coming under this commandment, and his parents are probably going to be old. And in this culture, there's no NHS, there's no people, there's no sheltered accommodation, there's no place for them to go. And God says, this society is not going to dismiss people when, they can't, when they're not a help around the house and when they're not a help around the workforce. You are to honor these people. I think, I think that gives us a helpful view of that commandment. This society is going to be one where the vulnerable in it, and it's kind of beautiful in it, are looked out for. And then there's so much wisdom, and it's almost like a beautiful command, I think, in the promise. Honor your father and mother so that you will live long in the land. Saying, it's likely that you're going to be an oldie one day yourself. It's likely you're going to be an oldie. And in in that, wouldn't it be nice if your offspring looked after you? It's kind of this picture of a beautiful pattern that God kind of creates in this instruction. It said, wouldn't this be a wonderful society if we didn't have to worry what life was like when we got old? It's sort of a beautiful thing. And again, it's another command that speaks right into our culture today where we don't have that same sense of care. I don't think. Six, seven, and eight. Don't, again, this is the, 
I'm definitely good here. Number six. So far, so far, so good. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery and don't steal. Here's the, here's the command. Value others. And, and I guess the commandments sort of, they start off the first four, really, really gets to think about God and they really sort of hone in on God and then they move out to what you should do around other people. So it's get, if you read through the commands chronologically, one through to the end, you get to this point where you're starting to look around at other people and you need to respect other people. And it's like, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. It's like, look at other people. It's beginning to open up that door. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's where this is going, isn't it? Look at other people and cherish them. And then finally, nine and ten. Don't give false testimony against your neighbor. Don't covet... Yeah, don't give false testimony against your neighbor. Don't covet your neighbor's house, wife, male or female servants, his animals, or anything that he has. When Joe just read that out now, I thought that's quite an odd, an odd expression. I, I, can, I can understand sort of coveting some of that stuff, but I've never looked at somebody else's horse and thought, I could get involved. You know, that look, that's interesting. Yeah, I could, I could fancy Nick. I could steal that. You know, that, I've, I've never been there, but I guess it's different times, different cultures. Don't covet your neighbor's house or wife. Be, be able to look at other people doing awesome, like way better than you, and have it, have it in your heart to go, okay, I'm happy for you. Kind of kills us, doesn't it, when people are doing better than us? It kind of breaks us in two when you see somebody coming around the corner in a, you know, you've just got your best car, you've, or a couple, you know, six months back, and then your neighbor just goes and does you over again and gets a slightly better car and drives past. And God's saying, don't, don't need to have that. In fact, go around and get him some fluffy dice and wish him well on his way, you know, kill him with kindness. Don't covet that stuff. And the picture, the picture that it builds, so it sounds initially like this is, this is horrible. You know, the do's and, and don'ts, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It just, it sounds like God is oppressing the people. But actually, when you, when you think about what the promised land's going to be like, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's an amazing place. I mean, it's already beautiful, flowing with milk and honey. It's got houses already built there, if you read through some of the text. It's got vineyards that are going to be ready there for you. If you've seen any pictures of Israel, it looks beautiful. And not only that, you're going to be able to walk around not needing to lock your door. You're not going to have to worry about getting ripped off. You're going to know that other people in your street want the best for you. This... Sounds like paradise, right? This sounds like the perfect place in the world. And here's, here's the rub. So this is the first part of the Bible story. This is up to Exodus chapter 20. Take the story on. So we're going we're gonna to jump massively. Take the story on to the end of the Old Testament. We find that these people, given that they've been given this beautiful place to live, and they've been given this beautiful set of rules that would make living there awesome, they cannot do it. And there's times when you're reading through the text and you think, actually, this bar's too high. It's too difficult. Makes no wonder they can't do it. God's asking too much. He's, he's too perfect and he's too holy. I get why they can't do it. And there's times when you, when you read through the text and you just think, these people are stubborn. And the Bible even says it's stubborn and stiff-necked people. They just don't want to do it. Either way you look at it, and by the time you get to the end of the story, you've got a bunch of people who are even though they've been given this perfect way to live, they're just broken. And you read through the, sto- they read through the story and they're trying to fix it. They, they look at other nations around about them and they say, all right, let's get a king, maybe that will fix it. Or they look at, they look at other nations and, the, and, the, and the, 
the fun that they're having in different sort of, and it's nearly always a sexual way. They look at other nations and they go, right, I want a bit of that. That's going to fix it. And they look around the whole time. But the, the way that the story climaxes is that they're still broken and they're still looking for the next fix. When I stopped to consider that storyline, it, it reminded me so starkly of our human race and our own selves, the way that the way that we function as people and the way that we have always kind of functioned as people and the way that we keep on looking. And, it's, and you can hear it now. Like The next time any sort, of, any sort of new political party comes in, they say, we've got what the fix is. We know what it is. Ed, you know, what was Labour's? Education, education, education. And the Tories came in. I don't know which way around this was. I can't remember. But they said, we need to get back to old-fashioned values. And now we hear, like, if, if we could just build more homes, that would fix society, or if we could less, let less foreigners in, that would fix society. And we've got, we've got this world where we're just constantly in flux of looking for the next thing to fix it. And yet we remain broken. Here's a question I'm going to hold up to you. What would it take, and you can answer it in your own time, what would it take to fix this world? Are you scrambling through your mind for a political policy? What would it take to fix this world? And then have a little think through the Ten Commandments. We need to get, because time has gone, we need to get, this story takes us, we've reached the end of the Old Testament, I guess, hopefully, chronologically with me, and we get to a point where we need to try and find some kind of answers. And Jesus speaks directly into the question of the Lord. Now, if, if I lived around the time that Jesus lived, and I knew that he could do miracles and all that sort of thing, I think I would have different questions for him. I think I would be more frequently asking him to provide wine, things like that, like at Cana. But wherever he goes, he finds himself explaining the law. And he reaches this point when, when he's got enough attention and he's got enough followers, and he sits down and he says, right, I'm going to take you through the Ten Commandments. I'm going to explain them to you. I'm going to make them clear. Here's what he says in Matthew 17. Sorry, in Matthew 5, verse 17 to 18. So read this with me. Do not think that I have come. Because I think, I think this is some of the things that people worried about. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. So listen to this. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter... Not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Hold on to those couple of words, fulfill and accomplish. Jesus is coming not to take change. I remember you were hoping that he changed some of them so you'd be all good. He says, I'm not going to change any of the law. I'm not going to change any of that. I am going to accomplish it. I am going to fulfill it. I am going to bring it to its completion. So you know it in its fullest sense. So real quick, a couple of ways that Jesus does that, and there's probably more, and there's probably theological gaps here, but I'm going to be as quick as I can, and it's things to hang your hat on. So here's another text. So he's beginning to explain it. So he does this a bunch of times. Everyone's sat there, and he starts to unpack the law, and he works his way through it one by one. Matthew 5, 21, 22, and then jump to 27, 28 if you're following it on your phones. You've heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone, and listen to this, anyone who is 
So I'm done. I thought I were all good on the murder. I thought I were all right, and then I'm blown. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with the brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And he jumps on again, 27. You've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone, and here again, I'm done again. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. This is what first thing that Jesus does with the law. And I guess up to this point, you've got, you've got a storyline of a bunch of people trying to keep it. A bunch of Pharisees, you know, religious leaders who are saying, I'm good. I have kept it to this point. The first thing that Jesus does is he, he exposes all of us under it. He says, he says you thought it was, it was a superficial thing. You thought it was about getting away with it. You, know, you thought it was about public actions. If you can just cover your tracks, you can get away with it. Jesus says, it's not like that. I think one of the things that we do, I don't know that we do it. I know that I do it. I take my Christian moral high ground from, from seeing somebody that's worse than me. I do the same thing when I go to McDonald's with my kids. I'm thankful for a family that has make more noise and more mess than I do. And I think, oh, thank goodness, I'm better than them. That's good. Let's, let's sit next to them so we look great. And we, I think we do that, I think we do that in, in our faith as we make our faith journeys. We go along and... We see somebody and we go, oh man, they're worse than me. So that means I'm all right. And we find somebody like that. And what Jesus does as he explains the law is he sort of rips that out from under our feet and he says, no. He says, there's nobody keeps this. We've, we've all missed this. We've all missed this mark. And all of a sudden the law becomes a bit clearer for everybody listening in. The second thing that I think that Jesus does is he explains that it's a heart thing. He makes that really clear. I think up to this point, there's been this real just like resolve by the people, by God's people. I'm going to just by sheer force of will, by ritual, by habit, we can keep this. And Jesus says, no, no, all along, this has been a matter for the heart. He takes it deeper. He says, you just think it's about not committing adultery. I'm saying it's about not even looking at a woman lustfully. He pulls it right into the heart of people. He says, that's where the heart thing." You honor me with your lips. This is one of his criticisms of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. So he doesn't, he doesn't take the law and make it any easier. He takes the law almost and goes, right, it's probably harder than you thought. And it's going to need, it's all about heart. Keeping it is all about heart. That's what God's after. Third thing that he does is he makes a way for us. It's impossible. The bar's too high. But Jesus makes a way for us. And I guess the places to look, if you want to follow this stuff up, if you're like, I'm not happy, Ash, with how you have expressed how Jesus keeps the law. Galatians, I'd send you there. Read Galatians, particularly chapter 3. And then all of Romans, it's all it's, it's explained clearly in there. And that's where we're going now. Romans 8, and this, this text is not up, um, but I'll read it out slowly and clearly for you. It's an important one. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life and this is wordy, and you're going to be like nodding off, but stay with it. The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law 
might be fully met in us. And if I asked you to explain what that meant, you'd be like, let me get up there, Ash. I can, I can do it in a second. Let me translate it for you. Jesus, Jesus kept the law perfectly when no one else could. And his, his like perfect sacrifice means that our standing before God now is not dependent on whether or not we can keep those Ten Commandments. It's dependent on what we make of that act of love that God did through Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not dependent on us managing to keep the commandments. It's dependent on what we make of that act of love Jesus did on the cross. See what Jesus does? He accomplishes the law. God wanted relationship with his people. He's, and he's a holy God, and he said, here's what it's going to look like for you to have a relationship with me. And it was impossible for the people, and Jesus makes it possible. Fourth thing that he does, final thing that he does, I think, is he shows us the love of God. When you see what Jesus did, up until this point, we see God a lot through the lens of thou shalt not do this and thou shalt do that. And, and there's a distance to him in the Old Testament, I think. And in the New Testament, we see through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we see, I think, clearly, I think it's always there, but we see it clearly, the heart of a holy God. And we see that actually, this God who commands, thou shalt not do this and thou shalt not do that, is a God of love. That's what you see when you look at the cross. That's what Jesus accomplish, accomplishes for us. One of my biggest frustrations as a parent is that when I, my kids look at me when I dish out these rules and that they don't know that I'm doing it because I love them. It's one of the biggest frustrations about being a dad. I'll, I'll say to them all the time, they'll, they'll say, can I have a glass of fizzy pop, dad? I'll say, no, you can maybe have a glass of fizzy pop at the weekend. And they look at me like, I hate you for not giving me fizzy pop. I just want fizzy pop. And why? You do not understand me. You do not love me. It's one of, the, one of the toughest things about being a parent is the fact that you're waiting for the, your kids to get, I'm, I'm hoping that it comes in a few years, where they get that the reason that you set these boundaries and these rules is because you love them. What Jesus accomplishes is he takes a God for who you could look at and go, I see the boundaries, I see what you're doing, and we realize that he loves us. Two takeaways and we're done. Two takeaway points. First one, with this book of the law that we think is thou shalt not do this and thou shalt not do that. This is a message for the heart. God, even in giving the law, the thou's and thou shalt not, he is wanting to communicate a message to our hearts. I don't know where you're at on your Christian journey, but it can be really easy to just kind of drift along to kind of attend stuff, and to kind of go back to just doing, your faith is like, I, I really shouldn't do this. I kind of know that I shouldn't do this, and I kind of should do that, and it can get like that. I think one of the challenges that, that the story of the law, as Jesus fulfills it, is no, God, this message is not just so you do stuff or you don't do stuff. This message is so that you see the heart of God and are moved by it. If your faith has become this kind of just plodding along thing, God, by his grace, will keep you. But I think there's a real challenge for us to be moved by the story of the cross again. One of the things I'm finding as I get 
to be an old dude is that God is always asking us to go deeper. It's, 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 all, you know, it's all right plodding along with your faith, but I think there's always that sense that, man, I feel like I'm just scratching at the surface of the love of God. And he invites us the whole time through the story of the cross. He says, no, trust me more. Get to know me more. Don't just practice faith. Be moved by the story of the cross. And the, the second and final thing. So you look back and you say, well, why, why do we have all this? If, if, if it's all about grace and if it's all accomplished in Jesus Christ, why do we have that massive long book? Why have we got, why have we got all those why have we got all those rules? Why have we got these Ten Commandments? It's because it re- it, God, is, God is really serious about the way in which we live. It really matters to him. It's important to him. He thinks it's essential that we live a certain way. And he, he, by the grace of God, gives us that grace and that liberty and that salvation in Jesus Christ. But he leaves for us this record of what it of the, of the trial that it is to live in relationship with the Holy God, of the struggle that it is to keep these commands. And I think we, what he would say to us now is, man, you're not, your salvation's not here in terms of keeping these, but cherish these commands. Don't drop them. This is a smart way to live. Put him first. Rest in him. Keep an eye on the vulnerable. Do the right thing. Think about others before yourself. The Ten Commandments. God wants to move our hearts and he wants us to live smart.